Welcome to Sleep Junkies. So, mention the word sleep technology and a lot of people will think about sleep tracking. You know, wearing a Fitbit on your wrist, uh, downloading an app, and in the morning you'll get a readout of results that will claim to tell you the kind of things you would learn in a sleep lab, like how long you slept, the breakdown of your sleep stages... Now, a lot of people are very sceptical of this sort of technology, and rightly so. But we've covered that topic. Uh, Go back to episode 16. We've got a two-parter about the whole debate on sleep tracking. Today, we're going to have a bit of a higher-level discussion about the whole subject of technology and sleep. Because whether you're a sceptic, whether you're an early adopter, it doesn't really matter. The technology is coming, and it's incontrovertible that in the next few years, we're going to witness a revolution in the way technology currently interfaces with sleep medicine, but also in the lives of everyday people. And the kind of things I'm talking about don't just apply to people with sleep disorders, they apply to how we design our homes, the type of lighting in our homes, the type of beds we sleep on, how you like to wake up in the morning. These things have nothing to do with sleep tracking, per se, but they all certainly come under this big umbrella of consumer sleep technology. So today we're going to have a very sensible, very objective, very science-based discussion about what exactly a lot of these new technologies are doing and where they kind of match up to the scientific literature. I'm going to do this by making a distinction between technology that measures your sleep and technology that can intervene and hopefully promote better sleep. So join us as we take a deep and exotic dive into cutting-edge world of consumer sleep technology, looking at things like light therapy, guided breathing, temperature regulation devices, pulse electromagnetic frequency devices, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So just before we get into it, very quick reminder, sleep junkies, we're independent, we don't have any corporate overlords rely on your love and your support so if you like this kind of content then leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts follow us on social media Twitter on Facebook, on Instagram take a look at the website sleepjunkies.com come and say hello on our Facebook group Sleep Junkies Worldwide that's it for the intro let's get on with the show Good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. I'm here on the other end of the line with Dr. Michael Brandner. Hi, Dr. Brandner. Hello. And you're in uh, Arizona. Is it sunny in Arizona? I am in Tucson, Arizona. It is a little cloudy today. This is sort of the wintryest it gets. It's about 55 and a little cloudy today. Um, but I'll take it. Sounds good to me. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Brandner doesn't really need any introduction. He's a friend of the podcast. We've spoken before on the podcast. Dr. Gran is a director of the sleep and health research program at University of Arizona. He's an associate professor. He's got a list of scientific publications as long as several arms. 
probably many, many more qualifications that would probably fill up one podcast. But he's also one of the nicest people in um, our world of Twitter sleep. Oh, thanks for saying. <laughs> always coming with an encyclopedic knowledge of all things to do with sleep. Also always coming with balance and nuance, which often isn't the case when you're talking about the kind of things we're talking about today and, and sleep in general. So thank you again for joining us. No, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always great to talk about this stuff. Fantastic. So today we're going to really, really embrace our inner geeks. <laughs> we're going to talk about sleep technology, specifically consumer sleep technology, because I went to one of your talks. Uh, I think it was called Tech Talk Tuesday. I was kind of blown away at first by uh, the kind of level of detail you went into it. It's a very, very fast moving industry sector. Some of these things are medical devices, some of them are lifestyle devices. There's not really that many people who are very up to date with the technology. And um, specifically, there, were, there was one thing that you mentioned, which really resonated. You mentioned that there's a big distinction with a lot of this technology, that some of it is designed to measure sleep, and some of it is designed to intervene in sleep or to actually try and promote better sleep. Now, we've talked about sleep tracking on the podcast before, way, way back in um, episode 16, I think it was. And um, so we're not going to dive in too much into, you know, the, the detail about sleep tracking. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about this idea of what is the goal of sleep technology, but also we're going to talk about some of the different types of interventions because, you know, we were just chatting briefly before I hit record and there's so much out there. There's so much stuff coming out at the moment. Um, but I'm kind of deep in this world of sleep technology and, and I don't think a lot of people are kind of aware. So I'm, so I'm hoping to kind of dive into your brain a little bit today and just give us some context for kind of where we are now, beginning of 2021, and just let people know what's out there and your take as a real sleep expert on what these things are, you know, what the point of these devices are. So let me hand it over to you, a typical long waffling intro from me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I think an important context for people to think about is what is this for? What are we trying to do? And that question, I think, is interesting because when you think back to where all this started, this started in the like early 1970s when someone had the idea of what if we could figure out um, what movement patterns were like across 24 hours? What were activity rest patterns just like in people measured objectively? And they had some pretty basic analog technology at the time. And they put these devices on, started out with you know a small number of psych patients and just followed them around for the day. Um, and then when they looked at the recordings, they, they very quickly saw that well, you can really easily tell what was the person's wake phase and what was their sleep phase. And over the next 10 years, very little sort of happened and developed. But some of that technology got um, developed a little bit, but then into the 80s and 90s, it really sort of took off as the, um, as the technology got a little more manageable. It was shown that actually it approximates real-world sleep-wake patterns shockingly well. I mean, not perfect, but then again, we can get back to what that even means. Um, 
And then so in through the 90s, in research labs, people were using these devices, these wrist-based, movement-based devices. Again, remember, this is all analog technology at the time, where they were just tracking how much movement was happening on happening on a minute-to-minute -minute basis and how much that correlated with uh, whether someone was awake or asleep or across 24 hours. And then what happened was, as the technology got better um, and these devices became more widely used, something else also happened. And this was the proliferation of sort of the field of, of what we're now calling sleep health, where this was not just looking at sleep disorders, this was looking at real world sleep as a dimension of health alongside diet and physical activity and stress, where sleep was uh, an equal member of that conversation. And as that was happening, more and more research was asking the question about how do people sleep in the real world? And, you know, as a scientist, you have a question, you need to be able to measure what it is you're trying to answer. So how do you measure sleep in the real world? Well, we had retrospective questionnaires that can pick up things that you can't get any other way, but they tend to be very blunt instruments. Uh, we have sleep diaries that are the gold standard for insomnia. They pick up your experience of sleep. But then people's judge, judgment of their own sleep often doesn't correlate very well with what um, some sort of objective or non-biased observer would say whether they were awake or asleep, the, the gold standard being brain waves hooked up in the sleep lab. And that's where a lot of this technology really started to shine, where it correlated well enough within laboratory measures to be used out in the real world, and it gave another voice to an element of sleep. So you had diaries that told what people's experience was, and you had these devices that had an objective estimate. Was it, it's not that one is not true and one is true. It's that they're both different views on the same thing. And for yeah. a decade or more, this is sort of how the research flourished. And then um, as the sleep health field developed, real people got interested in measuring their own sleep. And there began to emerge this technology available for purchase at reasonable cost for normal people to use devices that were built on this old 1970s, 80s, 90s technology that had just been updated over the years, um, sound scientific principles um, to get an estimate of what real world sleep was like. Um, there, were, there were accuracy issues and, and, and other issues um, that are all totally reasonable, but it, it allowed people a window into a part of their sleep that they never really had before. And, and I think, and I know it took me a long time to get there, but at the end of the day, what is the sleep tracking for? Why do it? Um, and I think it's because it gives people a window on their sleep that they don't consciously have. I mean, everyone sleeps every day. I mean, unless you pull an all-nighter once in a while, but that's rare. I mean, every human sleeps every day. We, we experience something on a daily basis. Why do we need a device to tell us something that we're already doing? Um, and we know what we're doing. Well, the truth is we don't. There's elements there that sleep gets in the way of memory. So we have these devices to tell us things about our sleep that we don't have a conscious experience of. And that's where they run into problems, where the question arises is how accurate is it? But you need to, you need to ask the question, accurate relative to what? Yeah. Um, the truth, right? We want to know, were you actually asleep or actually awake? Well, 
there is no truth to that in that th there is no way to know for sure whether someone is awake or asleep because wake and sleep, they're words that we use to describe complex states in the brain that are pretty black and white, but not totally black and white. And the parts of the brain that control them are very, very deep down in the brain. So there's no real accurate way to measure them in a human out living in the world. At least we don't have that technology yet. So the best we have is guesses. Um, we best we have is listening to a conversation through a brick wall and trying to guess what the people are talking about. <laughs> uh, and that's and that's polysomnography. That's the best we have. Um, you know, the second best maybe is is some of this tracking stuff where it's just getting a sense of how much movement is going on in that room to get a sense of sort of what's going on in there. Um, that's sort of what we've got. It's a rough estimate. It's always going to be a rough estimate. It'll get less rough over time. But at the end of the day, it's it's an estimate. And, and it's supposed to be so. And the value isn't what it tells you on one exact particular night. It's about the pattern that it gives you over time. Um, yeah. So... So that's what you've got with sleep technology. You've got these devices that are pretty good at giving a ballpark estimate as to whether or not you are probably awake or asleep at any given moment um, with between 80 and 95% accuracy relative to um, brainwave sleep stages, which again, themselves aren't perfect. Um, but it's sort of the gold standard because it's the best we've got. You know, and so they're pretty darn accurate, good enough, probably for at least a ballpark guess, especially if you're looking at patterns over time. So here's also the secret for, for people who are using sleep tracking technology. No sleep scientist is going to look at one night of a sleep tracker and assume that it gets, gives you anything very important. We look at averages over time. We're looking at weekly patterns, daily patterns, monthly patterns, um, changing patterns, not well, this night I woke up X number of times, does that mean anything? Um, we tend to not look at one night at a time because, you know, it, it's it's got a level of precision that gives comfort maybe, but, you know, it's it's a clear picture, but it's a clear picture that we know isn't exactly true. So we merge days together and look at overall patterns. And although that makes the picture fuzzier, it's fuzzy but truer. Um, and I think that's the real value in sleep tracking technology is is the degree to which it gives you a window on these overall patterns. Yeah. Um, well, th there's so many things in there. Um, <laughs> Sorry for dumping all that out. No, no, no. Great. I love it. I love it. You know, disclaimer, we have a, a, another website that focuses specifically on this kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, we're not trying to promote anything in particular, any particular product, whatever, but, um, you know, we're, we're deep in this field. Yeah, no, I mean, full disclosure, I've consulted for some of these tech companies, but I, I don't endorse any particular product. Yeah, absolutely. Great. You know, what, um, what I've seen over the years is um, a lot of people getting attracted by the idea of finding out what's happening when they sleep. And then there was some some poll or some survey or some study saying that, you know, 50, 60 percent of these Fitbits go in the, <laughs> the, the bottom drawer after a couple of weeks. I mean, this is another thing you said in your talk, you know, what good is knowing the percentage breakdown of your <laughs> your sleep stages right. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I like to spend for it. This is so worrying about your sleep stages in my mind is like worrying about the oxygen and the air, the makeup of the molecules of the air you're breathing. Um, and, and I think, and I think it translates well because let's say, as you know, so I have a patient who comes in and says, I, doctor, I, I, I I have this device here that's saying I'm, you know, I'm the oxygen that I'm breathing in sounds a little low. I'm worried that I'm not taking in enough oxygen. And so I said, all right, let's check your O2 levels. O2, O2 levels look okay, but yeah, okay, this device says you're you're taking in less oxygen than is average. Your O2 seems fine. Um, are you worried at all? Like, yeah, I'm worried. So I'd say, okay, is there any reason why your lungs aren't working properly? Assuming the air is fine. Um, do you have COPD? Do you have a lung disease or something? Anything in the way from your body being able to take in the oxygen it's breathing? No. Okay, great. Um, so, if, so if you're still worried about not getting enough oxygen and your lungs are fine, well, is there anything wrong with the air? Like, are you in a polluted place? Is there something in the environment that's making it so that the air you're breathing is low on oxygen if your lungs are working? No? It's like, well, then your air is fine. Your air is probably <laughs> fine. Your lungs are working fine. In that case, I don't see anything to worry about here. That was a red flag. Um, it was it was a sign to ask the questions. We asked the questions, and it turned out there was nothing there. But that's fine because we it led us to ask the questions. So the same thing with with these sleep stages in these consumer devices. You got to remember, sleep stages are made up. Like nature didn't create them; we did. Someone looked at the squiggly line from electrical tracing from electrodes at the top of the head and measured it over time and said, "Huh." Here's patterns of squiggly lines that change across the night. I'm going to yep. call it this one stage one, this one two, this one three, this one four. REM sleep exists, you know, and deep sleep exists, but I don't think it's as it's as clear cut as as scientifically we has, have to assume it is in order to do the math that we're trying to do. So like, okay, you say, oh, my device says I'm not getting a lot of deep sleep. So the equivalent is for the lung question is. Do you have any medical conditions that would prevent you from getting deep sleep? Something that's going to artificially get in the way of your body being able to get deep sleep. If so, let's treat those. Okay, but no. Okay, we get those out of the way. You're still worried about not getting enough deep sleep. So then I'll say, all right, is there the equivalent to the air argument is, is there something in your environment that's preventing you, even if your body is fine? If so, like the air pollution argument, let's clean up the air. Let's clean up the environment. And if the environment is fine, if you're sleeping in a cool, dark, comfortable, quiet place, and you have no medical issues in the way of getting deep sleep, and then and, and you're feeling okay, there's no reason for you to be worried, well, that which would be the equivalent of your O2 measurement, then I wouldn't worry. But the, the, the device picked up something that prompted the question, and sometimes that question leads to an opportunity to intervene. Um, yeah. But that's the important distinction where there's a difference between measurement and intervention. This is the difficult thing because, you know, there's an argument to say that um, and, and there's certainly evidence to say that sometimes these devices can be harmful because they can exacerbate people's existing anxieties about sleep. I, I see a lot of opinions divided in the sleep community. Some people saying just get rid of all the technology because, you know, if people are suffering from insomnia, a sleep tracker can make them worry more. Um, but the difficulty is uh, there is some kind of utility there, potentially. I mean, I, I'm doing a bit of an experiment at, at the moment with a, a few different trackers. 
I'm just accumulating all this data and it, it doesn't really go anywhere. And I, I don't think I've got a sleep disorder, but maybe if someone looked at my data for three months, they might find something <laughs> in this. <laughs> so who knows? Um, so we can see that there, for a lot of people, we're specifically talking about tracking technology here, yeah. uh, maybe isn't that useful. But there are potentially, maybe not right now, but certainly in you know the coming years, a lot of potential uses for you know widespread consumer sleep monitoring, sleep measurement technology, sleep tracking technology. And I, I wondered if you could just say a few brief words about that, and then then we can talk about actual different types of interventions that we're seeing yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think. Uh... I think sleep tracking with no purpose is going to, just like any tracking with no purpose, is going to become irrelevant very quickly, and, and it's not going to be helpful. Um, uh, before, before I talk about the metaphor that I want to talk about, but first I want to point out that I think there's a huge potential for sleep tracking in the future. I think, honestly, my prediction is simultaneously it's going to get much better and it's also going to get worse um, in a good way. So by better, I think the technology is going to improve. I think the the sensor technology that we've got, I mean, we had we had a lot of years of very slow progression because very few people really were, to be honest, very few people cared. So the engineers and very smart people who were working on this problem were, was a smaller number. And actigraphy and, and this technology developed slowly over a generation. Now it's developing super fast because there's a lot more very smart people who are now interested in it. And so there's that, that combined brain power is advancing the field very quickly. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited with for what's coming. Um, yep. That said, I also think it's going to get worse and in a good way. And what I mean by that is as, as the idea of sleep becomes more broadly accepted as a domain of health, measures estimating sleep are not only going to be more specific and accurate, but they're also going to be more sort of in the background. So there's a, one of my favorite papers that illustrates this is someone from Microsoft Research publishing 24-hour patterns in keystroke speed in the Bing search engine. <laughs> right. um, where they were, I just thought this was, this was really – so like this was not a study that was meant to operationalize sleep at all. There was no – you know that you can't measure sleep, but you can measure – like when people are awake and they're typing stuff into search engines, how fast and accurate are they typing? And you can look at these sort of 24-hour patterns. As a great example of people using data that's all around us in novel ways to look at sleep. You can look at, um, you know, as cars have computers, you can see when people are getting into their car to start their commute in the day and when they come home. You can talk about, you can see when people are turning their lights on and lights off. Like there's all kinds of, yeah. uh, there's a great paper that just came out um, where that, that estimated sleep just based on when people picked up their phone and when they put it down. The first pickup of the day, they're awake. For yep. the last, last put down of the night, they, they just went down. Um, and that, that actually correlated shockingly well. So anyway, so I think it's going to become more ubiquitous, and it's also the stuff that's focused on sleep is going to get better. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the reason why is because sleep is important, and sleep is is going to become increasingly important for two reasons, I think. One, because we're going to learn more 
about how sleep is important and what to do about it, but also that the culture is changing a little bit around sleep. We're starting to change our attitude towards sleep as a domain of health. And as, we're do, as we do that, we're seeing that sleep is actually, you know, sleep is important, like diet is, like exercises, like stress management is. And to be honest, um, kind of the secret in, in the sleep field is that sleep's actually easier to fix than some of these other things. And sometimes it's even the foot in the door to get you the energy and the mental space to even be able to fix the other things. So I think there's a lot of potential for improving sleep and, and using these devices to track that. There's the uh, the Aura Ring, which is a you know it's a it's a, it's a tracker. Uh, a lot of celebrities picking up on it, and there was a, a study came out about it being um, a proactive health monitoring device that you know could potentially pick up um, you know things like the flu. Mm-hmm can be used to predict something like covid it seems that a lot of these technologies they're, they're all kind of coalescing it's really interesting the example you mentioned about um you know the keystrokes you know I, I think there was a study a few years back about they were tracking um trump's uh, tweets yeah. to kind of extrapolate his his sleep behavior and then we did a, a talk with kathy goldstein about mm-hmm. ai in, in sleep as well all these things are kind of coming together. So, and obviously a lot of the tech, the consumer tech that some people say isn't useful, it's pretty obvious if you look at the big picture, the potential is, uh, you know, is huge. You know, think about sleep trackers as, uh, one way to think about them that I think is useful is think about sleep trackers as a bathroom scale. Now, some people, so you talked about people saying that, well, trackers just make people more anxious. Like, yeah, if you've got a weight problem and you're stepping on the scale every day and your numbers are going in the wrong direction, that may cause panic. That may cause mm-hmm. avoidance behavior. That may cause feeling overwhelmed. That doesn't mean that you should throw out your bathroom scale. What yeah. it means is that's a signal you need to get some help. Um, maybe you need to talk to a therapist or, or go into a weight loss program or something. Um, it's not a problem with the scale, I don't think. That, that's my argument. Is that the scale's fault? Yeah. Um, but also, if your weight is generally fine and you step on the scale every day and the numbers are generally fine and they continue to be generally fine every day, like it doesn't provide you useful information. Um, and, and a bathroom scale is not a weight loss program. It's an important part of many weight loss programs, probably most, but it itself is not a weight loss program. For some people, it may be enough. For some people, the feedback of their information is enough to help them weigh the choices that they've been making, make changes, and, and adequate, adequately interpret the results of those changes by some objective measure. But the truth is weight loss is way more complicated. For very few people, is that actually useful? Same, it's like with recommendations. We have these sleep time recommendations, which are a great place to start. The recommendations also aren't interventions. Behavior change is complicated. Humans are complicated. We do yeah. all kinds of things for, for reasons. And, you know, a, and it's okay to have a better bathroom scale with more bells and whistles that's more accurate, that gives you not just your weight, but also your BMI and maybe your electrical conductance. And there's all these new things that bathroom scales are doing. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a scale. It's a fancier yeah. scale, but it's a scale. And yeah. the, the, real, the real value in it isn't just standing on it every day. It's not just the data from the tracker. It's what do you do with that information? How is yeah. that helpful or useful? Absolutely. Yeah, means, not ends. And I think that, you know, it's as simple as that. These are tools. And, right. um, 
I'm sure I could pick your brain for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but um, I wanted to get a bit more specific, open the box a little bit and talk about some of these different types of interventions. Because as I said earlier, um, we're just seeing tons and tons of different types of devices, things coming up on crowdfunding platforms on Kickstarter, new inventions, new ways of doing old things, all trying to tackle the big universal problem of sleep, um, but doing it in all types of different ways. Um, and just very briefly, before yeah. we, we talk about specific types of interventions, you know, something I want to ask you as well is this thorny issue of, of validation. Yeah. Because a, a lot of people are coming from the viewpoint that X device or Y device is useless. You know, I'm not even going to have a conversation yeah. about you because it's not been validated. So, for instance, uh, an aromatherapy machine being marketed as a sleep device. Now, undoubtedly, some people would fall asleep better with an aromatherapy machine. But I can't see a big, you know, research group doing a, a huge <laughs> exhaustive study. It's never going to happen. You know, there's literally thousands of these different types of devices. Right. So do we need to go down that road of validating every single new gadget, sleep gadget, sleep device in order for, you know, it to be valid <laughs> in quotes? So, so, so I want to, for the people listening who are, who are not scientists, I want to I'm going to talk for 20 seconds as to what validation means. Yeah. Validation is is a process um, by systematically determining whether a measurement device is valid. In that, is it measuring what it says it's measuring? So, like, if a bathroom scale is valid, to continue the old metaphor, the weight that it gives you should be your weight. And so how do you make sure it's correct? Well, you step on it a bunch of times, does it change? Um, you step on that and then a scale that you know is good, do they give you about the same number? Um, and that's generally what validation is, but also validation is a process. It's not, um, it's not an event. It's not that saying something is validated is sort of shorthand by saying it's, it's undergone some degree of validation. But yeah. like, so for example, is a device equally valid in people who are older versus people who are younger versus right. kids? Is it, is it equally valid at all latitudes? Is there a difference in, you know, is it equally valid at all altitudes? Is it equally valid in all cultures? Um, is it equally valid in men and women? Is it equally valid in sick people versus well people? What about people with sleep apnea? Is it valid there? Is it valid in people with insomnia? Is it valid for people who have sleep complaints but not it? Like, there's an infinite, there's an infinite amount of complexity that that exists in the world that any measurement device may or may not stack up to so no no device nothing will ever be totally perfectly validated in all situations it's just sort of has it gone through enough and so there's actually published standards as to sort of what's enough where you could say that this device has undergone enough validation where you can at least take it seriously um, and there's some guidelines for that where basically it's you compare it to the best gold standard you have, in this case for sleep, it's polysomnography, under relatively controlled conditions in, uh, in people for whom, you know, you wouldn't expect things to fluctuate too much and then see if, how they compare. Um, yeah. You know, but 
again, validation is a process. There's actually a paper that just came out in Sleep written by Kathy Goldstein and uh, Chris Deppner um, about this issue and about how maybe we should stop using the word validated and validation for sleep tracking. We should just call it performance, where how does it perform? Under what situations does it perform best? Which metrics perform better than other metrics derived from the device, for example? And so thinking about it in terms of performance versus validation, I, I think they're right. I, I think yeah. that's that's a more accessible, that's a more accurate and accessible um, and realistic way of looking at it. Like, how well does this perform? Well, it might perform differently in certain situations. Doesn't mean it's useless or, or, or not. Um, and as a scientist, my default is not useless until proven value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's already you're taking a stand. I, I, I believe in equipoise. I believe in this perspective that a lack of evidence is not an evidence of lack. I, I By default, I'm neutral. It could be the best thing in the world or it could be the worst. I have no idea until you show me data one way or the other. Um, and so I'm not going to default assume that something is is not valid with the lack of validation data, but I won't also won't assume that it is. I'll take everything with a grain of suspicion and salt and see how it holds up to other things because yeah. you're right. Every device isn't going to go through huge amounts of systemic validation, and eventually we're going to need to get to the point of where, where there's some enough enough technological standards where we can compare one device to another. We may not be there yet. So that's so that's my brief talk about validation, but then also why it's complicated in terms of, of sleep. I think for a device to be trustworthy, you need to have evidence that it's trustworthy. Um, but you don't. If you're a consumer and you don't really care how accurate it is, fine. I like. I just won't believe the data um, unless it's in the context of other things with which it makes sense. Um, and then that's just that's just sort of where I am. If you don't really care how accurate it is, but having a thing on your wrist that sends you alerts and reminds you is make is benefit to your life, fine. I just won't use it in a study and and trust the numbers until I've shown that it delivers under pressure. Um, so that that that's my spiel on validation. Yeah, um, I love it. Balance. <laughs> yeah, uh, Doctor Michael Grandner. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, okay. Let's get into these different type of interventions. Now, I'm thinking like one of these reality TV shows, and I'll just <laughs> I'll just reel off a load of uh, different types of technology. And imagine you've got some scorecards there, and you know you can give me a nine or I oh, know I'm joking. Sure. But <laughs> before you do that, though, there's two things I wanna I wanna mention to people in terms of how to think about interventions for sleep. Um, that that's I think an important context. Yes, please. One is the difference between treating a sleep disorder and improving someone's sleep health are hugely different. If someone has a sleep disorder, they have the equivalent of a medical condition that you take a medicine for, or you do a therapy for, or you treat to alleviate the symptoms of that condition or or remit from that condition, versus something that promotes sleep health. That's targeted to people who don't have a sleep disorder, but they want their sleep to be better than it was. And and they're going from not terrible to less not terrible, as opposed to a sleep disorder. So for example, there are some things that are great at promoting sleep health that are completely useless for treating sleep disorders. I mean, it's like if you have a broken arm, hand washing isn't going to do you much Hmm. good um, because that's not the problem you have. So that's the one thing I want to say off the bat that... 
that the context of whether something's good or not depends on what it's for. If it's for treating a sleep disorder, you're gonna, it's gonna be more intensive. But um, things that aren't meant to treat sleep disorders aren't gonna work for sleep disorders, but they'll work for promoting health. The other thing I wanna mention that I think is critically important in the consumer sleep space in terms of interventions is that relaxation is not sleep induction. There's a huge difference between things that relax you and things that promote sleep. Um, relaxation, you know, there's all kinds of relaxation interventions. And a lot of things that are out there that, that claim to promote sleep have nothing to do with sleep. They only promote relaxation and assume that if you can promote relaxation, you can enhance sleep. That's an assumption that's actually often wrong. And there's reasons for that. But for some time, for some people, it is right. Like you were talking about the aromatherapy device. There's actually quite a bit of data on aromatherapy and relaxation. There's almost no data on aromatherapy and sleep. Um, even if it does promote relaxation, sometimes relaxation is the barrier, but actually often relaxation is just one piece of the puzzle, and that's why usually it's not enough. So that's the other distinction I wanted to make, that there's interventions for relaxation that can be great for relaxation, but don't really have much to do with sleep. Great. That's why I asked you on, on the podcast for little gems like that. And I, <laughs> you just give me another topic for another episode, relaxation. I've never thought about it in that way. So thank you for that. All uh, right. And, and, so so, and, so throw, throw some at me. Yeah, j just before I do, uh, this is where the marketers get us into trouble because they say this this is you know <laughs> going to cure this or whatever. Uh, we're not going to get into that, um, nope. but I'm going to throw some at you. Okay, so um, – coaching you mentioned um coaching program so just to explain that you might wear a sleep tracker and then your device your fitbit or your bedside device your tracker will give you some kind of guidelines towards sleep so i'd just like to you know for all of these just give a very brief overview yeah. of you know the general efficacy and where we're at with this type of tech so you know okay. sleep coaching programs so sleep coaching programs I, I unfortunately you ask a scientist a question you can never get a straight answer so so there's there's three i'll keep brief answers that question number one um when the coaching program is actually treating an insomnia disorder using cbti a cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia done appropriately um even though it's via an electronic format um, that's probably quite effective, may even be more effective than, than sleeping pills. Um, in some cases, as effective as in-person therapy. A lot of times, maybe not quite, but still much better than placebo and quite effective. That's treating a medical condition using a therapy designed for that medic medical condition that just looks kind of looks like a, a telehealth coaching thing, but it's not actually coaching, that's therapy. Coaching, sleep coaching, where and there's two kinds I've seen. One is you're sort of just delivering tips, like sleep hygiene tips, and the other one is you're having a conversation with someone. Um, the one that's sleep hygiene tips, that's the easiest to answer. If you have a more severe problem, those tips are not gonna be enough. Um, sleep hygiene is great, actually, for promoting sleep health, for preventing problems. It's like brushing your teeth and washing your hands are hygiene. Everyone should do them, they're great but you can't brush your way out of braces. Um, you can't hand wash away COVID. Like it's just, it's, it's not gonna work. So, yeah. uh, so it's, it's, they're actually great things and they're probably great for minor problems and preventing problems. But if you've got a more severe problem, those tips aren't quite gonna be enough and they may not apply to your life. Like telling people to stop drinking coffee afternoon on people who don't drink coffee is not helpful. 
Um, yeah. So then the third one, the most complicated are, are the coaching, where it's like actually delivering targeted feedback by individuals. Usually these coaches are not licensed professionals. They're people who've been through some training program that may or may not be useful or knowledgeable or anything. So that I think it's highly variable based on the quality of the program and yeah. how well vetted the program is and how good the coach is. So I think you can have the whole gamut by things that are as good as actual professional therapy to a bunch of nonsense. And I think it all has to do with quality control and there's a lack of regulation in that space. So those are actually three answers to that question. Love it. Um, so basically just check what type of coaching it's going to be. Just don't seek the word coaching and that's going to coach me to better sleep. And, and if it helps you, it helps you. Um, if, if you think you, if you have a sleep disorder, get therapy, get, get either medical therapy or psychological yep. therapy or CBTI or whatever that's treating your condition. If you don't have a disorder, see if coaching works for you. And if it helps you, then great. Okay. Next one. I see this as a big new trend in the last couple of years. Um, so sleep trackers, sleep monitors that are not really focused on sleep staging, but they're looking at <clears throat> uh, more sleep breathing related metrics. <clears throat> Excuse me. The way I, I try to describe them to people, they're kind of bridge devices because uh, there's a huge, huge lack of access to people to get testing for sleep apnea yeah. and there's there's a huge undiagnosed population in the world i read somewhere like one in seven like you know nearly one billion people may suffer in some it's, way it's, it's shockingly underdiagnosed um yeah. that the, the, the see, any um, any estimates the estimates are hard because it's hard to know if you have sleep apnea unless you get tested but the estimates are like Something like one in one in five men over thirty probably has at least some sleep disorder breathing, at least in the U.S. And at least one in twenty women over thirty probably has something. It's it just never gets caught, and people are just tired and fatigued, or they wake up during the night. It's yeah. it's it's shocking how commonly how common it is and how often it's missed. So, what do you think of this this new wave of, uh, you know, I call them SpO two monitors, yeah. which is which is a, a measure of the, you know, blood, blood oxygen. oxygen. Yeah, so they can measure oxygen relatively well, um, but so to 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 detect sleep apnea, you need to know if somebody is trying to breathe but cannot, and that causes a dip in their oxygen. So it's like because you you can slow your breathing, and as long as your oxygen stays high, that was just your breathing slower. If your breathing is slowing and your oxygen stops uh, is dropping and you're trying to breathe, it means there's a blockage and something in the way. So that's the difference between – so like the O2 sensor itself isn't enough for diagnosis. But all these devices that can have that – because they can't measure flow and they can't, they can't really measure effort, but they can measure what's happening and they can measure sometimes respiration, whether you're breathing. Um, so they can give a hint as to whether um, – you might need to get tested. So having the device as a screening tool for sleep apnea, not necessarily a diagnostic tool, we're not mm. there quite yet, but maybe soon, but as a screening tool for sleep apnea where it says, you know what, we're checking your O2, you're checking your breathing, we're checking your heart rate, you know, you need to see a doctor about this and get tested. As an intervention, um, that would be really cool because that would get people where they need to go even if they had no idea because most people have no idea. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, that sounds like a thumbs up to me. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm all for it as long as you don't oversell it. And, yeah. I mean, and, and and it's not treating it, but at least it alerts you to a problem you didn't know you have, but it's very common. I I'm all for that. Great. 
Well, there's obviously a lot of complications with regulation, and it's you know we're going into the worlds of medical equipment. But yeah. anyway, let's put let's park that one. Um, yeah. Temperature regulation. Yeah, technology. It's a good one. There's a couple of different ways to sort of do this that people are doing. There's ones for the whole bed, so you lie on it, or you've got something that blows cold air in your bed. But you've also got a few devices which are actively cooling the head, and you know mm-hmm. some of these have been through proper trials and have mm-hmm. got real good evidence on. So, what about these uh, temperature uh, regulation yeah. devices? So, I think you're right that there are these two two main approaches for temperature. The the devices of for like cooling your brain, which is literally what it's for. It's to like if your brain is hot at night, it cools it down, helps you get into sleep. There is some solid data that for 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 some people who have an insomnia disorder, like it's actually a could be a relatively effective treatment. Um, and for that, it's, it could be useful, uh, for the bed cooling stuff. I don't think that's going to treat any sleep disorder, but certainly temperature and sleep go hand in hand. And like, look, I live in Arizona. Our problem is it gets too hot at night a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but I come from the Northeast where, where me growing up, I remember times when it was too cold at night. And, you know, either way, if I had a technology that was safe, I mean, heated blankets have been around forever because of this. Like we know mm. this, but we just have better, safer technology to help people be comfortable during the night. Um, there's not a ton of data. I would love to see more studies on like in the lab under controlled conditions or even in the home, but under controlled measured conditions. What do these things actually do to help protect sleep? If, do they just sound like a good idea? Do they just people say that they're comfortable? Does it actually do anything? Um, I think the jury's still out. I, I just don't think there's a lot of research done on there to demonstrate what exactly it does. But I think in mm. principle, I, I'd give it a thumbs up. I'd say I would expect that it could be beneficial um, for people, for, for a lot of people, especially people who are in hot or cold places. Um, but I, I, before I give a, a more vigorous thumbs up, I'd want to see more data. Great. Thanks for that. Okay. Um, guided breathing devices. Uh, all different ways, people, you know, things using light, using sound. Uh, there's a, a sleep robot which uses uh, guided breathing. Uh, what's your take on these, this uh, in type of intervention? Um, I, I, again, a tentative thumbs up on this one. There's, there's actually extensive data on guided breathing and relaxation. There's not a lot of data on guided breathing and sleep. So a, as a relaxation exercise, um, my guess is that they're probably good, though, again, I don't know about these particular breathing exercises. So just because breathing exercises in general promote relaxation, I I would want to see data on these particular exercises and whether they specifically work and whether it's more than just relaxation but also sleep. But I think in principle, these are probably great relaxation devices, and if relaxation is a barrier to sleep, it's probably helpful. But again, more of a tentative thumbs up until I see actually better controlled studies. Um, which, which, as you mentioned earlier, are, are hard to do, are expensive, and take a lot of time, which is why you don't see them. But, I, yeah. but in order to have a clear answer to the question, you have to be able to ask the question. Okay. Um, moving on. Um, light therapy. <laughs> There's a lot of these glasses coming out, some of them by very well-respected scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so imagine like a pair of specs, you know, if you can visualize it. And instead of there being, you know, a pair of frames, you've got some LED lights shining generally blue or green lights into your eyes. I'll leave it there. People, you know, yeah. I'll put some show notes so people can find out more. Yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole of the science as to why. And, and but yeah, I mean, the light therapy glasses, um, in principle, they should work. There is some data on them. I mean, there's data on light therapy going back to the 1980s of shining bright lights in your eyes, especially in the morning, um, to promote uh, healthy circadian rhythms and even improve mood and energy levels. I mean, those data are pretty solid. The delivery by the glasses using using the specific wavelength, there's less data, but I think there's enough to say that these things are probably going to be helpful and, and um, will probably accomplish what the old big clunky light boxes did. Um, they may not be quite as good, but they're certainly much more comfortable and easier to use. Um, yeah. So I think the light glasses are, are a good thing. Um, I'd want to see, you know, obviously specific devices. You can't just say it's a light glass, light glasses. Like, yeah. is it in the right wavelength at the light, right brightness? And are people using it at the right time at the right intensity? But in principle, you know, I, they get a thumbs up from me if we're doing these ratings. Um, but then also there's the blue blockers on the other side, whether it's screen dimmers or glasses. Hmm. So, so those also can be very effective at blocking that same light that you want in the morning to send a daytime signal. You don't want it at night. So those, those interventions, I think, also are great as long as they work. So a lot of blue blocking technology exists, um, and, and it's not all good. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes you know, it's more than just the light that's creating alertness. But here's a, here's a general rule of thumb. If you're wearing a blue block, glasses that call themselves blue blockers, or your screen is dimming and, and it says that it's a blue blocking screen dimmer, and you can tell the difference between the color blue and the color orange on a screen mm -hmm. or out of your eyes. You see blue. You look at the sky. If it looks blue to you, you're not blocking enough blue. There you um, go. Rule yep. of thumb. So orange yep. lenses, red lenses, those sorts of things are great at blocking blue. but um, And they can be effective if they're the ones that work. Yeah. Not these designer ones that are just, you know, um, just, just look nice but don't have any orange tint. Right. If they don't have an orange tint, they're probably not blocking enough blue to have a circadian effect. But again, show me the data. Actually, I don't show know of a single data. study that's looked at those kind of lenses under circadian conditions. There might be yep. one. I just don't even know. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Just to round it off, I know you have to run off. I'm just sure. going to fire some really exotic technology. Sure. <laughs> Neurofeedback. Neurofeedback has a history of being used in insomnia. Um, and, and for listeners, neurofeedback is just where you're, you get to see your own brain waves and you can train yourself to modify them or, or, or you get played sounds and things. Um, the, it does work. It tends to work well for like stress reduction and things. The data on sleep are, very, are, are actually surprisingly weak um, for neurofeedback. So for some people, I think it might be helpful there is some data that shows proof of concept, but the data also don't show that it's like a, a revolutionary huge thing. But again, the technology is going to be improving. This is where I, I would keep an eye on this over the next 10 years. And as the technology gets better, we might be able to develop better neurofeedback that produces better outcomes. Great. Early stages, that one. Um, PEMF, pulse electromagnetic field therapy now all of these things i'm i'm reeling off yeah. there are actually real world devices out there using this technology so um i'm not even sure if that's a, that's how you pronounce this acronym but i'm calling it you call it whatever you want 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, this is this is another one where it's kind of early. There's some data that shows. It, in my mind, it's more at the proof of concept stage than as a, a, an established "this is going to work" stage. Okay. Um... Transcranial direct current stimulation. Now, I haven't seen any sort of uh, easily available devices out there, but uh, uh, you know, sure they'll very, come. I'm sure they'll come. A very famous uh, sleep scientist, everyone, I'm sure everyone's heard of, Matthew Walker, has um, talked about this as a you know potential um, beneficial intervention. What's your take on on, on this? This is a, a mild electrical current on your skull. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it, like the funny way to say it is it's 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 sort of electro shock therapy instead of dialed up to ten, it's dialed down to one. Um, right. And there's actually a long history of the, of use of this in psychiatry and neurology. That's actually built on on very sound scientific principles for stimulating brain electrical activity. Um, the data for sleep are also that they look promising. I, I don't. It's probably beyond proof of concept, but it's like what frequency delivered where, delivered how. I think those are the questions that are still being optimized. But clearly, there's probably going to be some way to deliver an, a safe electric current to stimulate a brain region to create a response that might help promote sleep. It's just I don't think we've all the kinks have been worked out yet. We're not there. Watch this space. I'm going to leave yeah. it there. There's lots more we could dive into. Um, for sure. I'll let you run off, Dr. Gren. Anything you want to say in closing? Thank you again so much for um, coming on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. And, and for everybody out there, you know, thanks for tuning in. I mean, you're listening to a whole podcast about sleep stuff. And and it's really great to see that, that people actually care about this. This is something we do every day. It actually makes an impact on your life. And, and rather than seeing sleep as an expense, if we see sleep as an investment in ourselves and our own mental and physical productivity and performance, I think I think we'll all be better off. So, so thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thank you again. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. I'm Jeff Mann. Feel free to get in touch with any questions about anything to do with sleep. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you on the next one.